1: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, visiting lecturer at the University of Pittsburgh, and your host for our interview today. I'm speaking with Joshua L. Reed. Dr. Reed is Associate Professor of History at the University of Washington and is the author of The Sea is My Country, The Maritime World of the Macaz, which came out with Yale University Press in 2015 and won a bevy of awards in 2015 and 2016, including the Cahee Prize in Western History from the Western History Association. We'll be discussing The Sea is My Country on the podcast today. Welcome to the New Books Network, Josh.
2: Great. Thank you for having me, Steve.
1: Uh, First, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become involved in history professionally, and what is your background as a historian?
2: Great. Uh, Yeah, so I'm a born and raised Washingtonian. Uh, I'm a member of the Snohomish Indian Tribe, uh, which is a Coast Salish peoples here in the greater Puget Sound region. Uh, So I kind of came into history, I guess you'd kind of say almost kind of through the back door. Uh, As as an undergraduate at Yale, I majored in political science and picked up a second in studies in the environment. Uh, Probably only took... A handful of history classes, sadly because uh, my history background in high school was pretty underwhelming. It was uh, the sort of experience uh, where the football coach taught history and barked at us and told us to read the chapter and answer questions and stay quiet. Um, So uh, my my interest didn't really emerge until later um, when I started teaching middle school uh, back here in Seattle. Uh, one of the courses that I taught was Washington State History. So I kind of came to my interest in history uh, a little later, uh, perhaps than some other people who are in my profession, that it was through teaching middle schoolers, uh, sixth, seventh and eighth graders uh, about Washington State History and world geography that I really kind of became Uh, enamored with the power of narrative, uh, the way that the stories that we tell about the past and how we even come to know the past uh, has such power and relevance to us today.
1: And what got you interested in the history of the macaws and of the environmental history of the Pacific Northwest uh, more generally?
2: Yeah, well, those kind of emerge especially the Macaw history bit, that kind of emerges from uh, my longer background uh, as uh, a Washingtonian and as a native person here in Washington state. Uh, My grandfather used to take my sister and I down to uh, Claylock, which is a series of beaches just south of Cape Flattery. And we'd go camping there and he'd stoke up a nice driftwood fire and tell us stories Mm -hmm. About his own uh, mother and grandmother, uh, and their you know fishing activities out on the water and drying salmon in the house, uh, you know. And so I I came uh, to really kind of appreciate the role of people, specifically Native people, uh, in this marine environment um, that was such a core part of my growing up. Uh, additionally, around that same time, my parents started to take me backpacking. And the first backpacking trip we did was down to Cape Alava, uh, which is right there uh, at Ozette, which is part of today's Macaw Reservation. And that's really the site of one of the premier archaeological digs uh, in the Northwest Coast. Uh, so that's where back in the, oh, 1970s. Uh, there were a series of excavations uh, for more than a decade of uh, of this village, of uh, this Macaw village uh, there on the coast. And so, you know, as a young person growing up, uh, I got to experience and see uh, this active dig, which was just really interesting uh, to, to to witness. And to see macaws uh, working side by side with archaeologists Mm -hmm. from Washington State University at this really active, uh, prolific archaeological site. Uh, But then finally, what really kind of drew me to this particular topic, especially the intersection of uh, indigenous history, specifically macaw history, and the environment, uh, was through teaching Washington State history. Uh, particularly around 1998 and 1999, as macaws were stepping up their interest in uh, in hunt- hunting a whale, uh, there was all kinds of rhetoric, uh, specifically racist rhetoric in newspapers and television news coverage uh, that, you know, my students heard. And they would come into the classroom and ask questions about that. You know, like, what? why do people... Describe my cause this way. Don't they understand that's racist? Why don't they know more about the treaties? And, you know, so they were asking some, you know, kind of very historically grounded uh, questions that then I was like, this would be really interesting to look at in a more substantive way. Uh, so that kind of led me then mm-hmm. on to graduate school.
1: Well, let's get into the book. And to begin with, why don't you set the scene a bit for us? Tell us where exactly the Chadi borderland is and where does that geographic idea come
2: from? Yeah, so the space that I ended up writing about uh, is right there at the northwestern point of the contiguous United States, Cape Flattery. And this has been the homeland of Macaw peoples uh, for many, many, many generations, uh, for forever, uh, from the stories that they tell. Uh, so for me, I approached it as not the northwesternmost point of the contiguous United States, but from a Macaw-centric view, which then led me to ask, well, what, what would Macaws have called this area? What would they have called... You know, these marine waters, the lands and islands that are around there. And they didn't really have a specific term for all of uh, kind of the, the, the set of their homelands. Uh, but they did have a name, uh, and this is one of several Macaw names for Tattoosh Island, uh, which is just right there off of Cape Flattery. And one of those names is Chadi, and that's one of the Macaw names for that island. So when I was starting to think about, okay, how do I reorient readers towards something that is more Macaw-centered, that's when I kind of came to the point that this name that they called Tatusha Island is a great name to use to help readers think about this from a Macaw perspective. Uh, So... From kind of non indigenous uh, perspectives, this is right there at the western edge of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Um, If you're standing there at Cape Flattery looking out at Tatouche Island, you can see across uh, to Vancouver Island. You can see the mountain ranges uh, there. Um, You know, and so this term, then, Chadi, is what I embrace to try to orient my readers uh, in this marine landscape.
1: Tell us about the political geography of this borderland, particularly in the latter half of the 18th century, when the narrative of the book really kind of gets going. Who lived in this region, and Mm -hmm. how were their social and their economic systems adapted uh, to the region's ecology in particular?
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, So by the mid to late 18th century, uh, when Europeans finally kind of start to... Uh, intrude upon this part of the Pacific. Uh, this was a landscape that I describe as a borderlands, um, and so kind of, th- you know, uh, I take a very straightforward definition to borderlands: uh, space or a region uh, that is contested and shared by distinct peoples. And so then that led me to think about, okay, well, how do I describe the distinct peoples that are in what we traditionally call the Northwest Coast region? Uh, from kind of an anthropological culture area uh, perspective, the Northwest Coast, especially right there at Cape Flattery where the macaws live, uh, that's where you have a number of different peoples uh, kind of rubbing up against each other, coming together. Uh, so you've got Coast Salish people, um, you know, which is uh, where, where my background, my personal background comes from. Coming out of Puget Sound, the Salish Sea region, um, you know, that are kind of further to the east uh, in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Some of them are coming out to trade and engage with other peoples there at Cape Flattery. Uh, You have uh, other uh, peoples like the Quileute, the Ho, and the Quinault, and even people from Columbia River uh, who are coming up to Cape Flattery. Uh, to trade. And then you've got all of the Northwest Coast peoples uh, there at um, you know on Vancouver Island and further to the north who are coming down to Cape Flattery. And so macaws are right there in the middle of all of these different peoples coming together. And so directly to their north, they've got a range of neutral north uh, First Nations um, people up based around Nootka Sound and Barkley Sound and Clayoquot, uh, and then they've got uh, people like neighbors like the Clallams uh, to their east, and then some of those tribes, uh, tribal nations to the south, and so each of these groups really did embody a different people and thought of themselves as different peoples, peoples different from others, from their neighbors, and so. A lot of times when we talk about the complexity of a space like this in indigenous North America, we oftentimes think about it as a collection of smaller polities. Um, many of those kind of political units are rooted at the village level, but you did have uh, kind of loose confederations coming together, um, such as uh, groups uh, around Nootka Sound, Uh, But then you also have, say, the cluster of five villages there, at Cape Flattery, uh, that are coming together, you know, at least at some point in the 18th century, if not earlier, as the Quidditchat, the people of the Cape, which was an identity that they embraced that differentiated them from others. And then they interacted through a variety of different networks. Uh, Trade, of course, is one of the big driving factors in this region. Uh, Macaw traders were right there at the hub of multiple trade networks extending all the way up into southeast Alaska, down into northern California, uh, east into Puget Sound, and then connecting with networks that would cross the mountains and go east of the Cascades all the way to the foothills of the Rockies. Uh, Macaw traders themselves uh, traveled uh, within many of these networks, but a lot of people also came to Cape Flattery to trade with macaws. Tell us a bit
1: more about that trade. Um, Mm -hmm. In particular, in the book, you you talk about how leaders such as um, the man named Tatouche, how Mm -hmm. how people like that were able to control maritime space, um, particularly Mm -hmm. during the late 18th century, as years of non-native encounter are going on and growing more intense. Can you tell us more Mm -hmm. about that?
2: Yeah, so macaws not only were uh, perfectly situated there at Cape Flattery, where these different networks came together, but they also had access to valuable goods that many other peoples wanted. Oftentimes, when we think about the Northwest Coast region or the Pacific Northwest, uh, we talk at length about what a rich uh, resource base uh, we've got here in this region. Uh, but those resources are differentially spaced out, so you know some people have access to many different kinds of salmon, whereas others have access to just a few. From a cause, they had access to a lot. Uh, they had these incredibly lucrative halibut banks, um, you know then it, there in the 18th century um, that uh, were unrivaled um, until you get you know what into Southeast Alaska or something like that. Uh, They also had access to uh, quite a few sea mammals, uh, many different species of whales, seals, sea otters. Um, Because of the way that the currents flow uh, there off the coast of what is today Washington State, it would bring these sea mammals uh, in close to macaw villages, which made it a lot easier for them to go out and hunt whales or hunt seals. Um, So macaws became very proficient sea hunters uh, that would head out up to at least 100 miles into the open ocean in their canoes to harvest uh, a wealth of uh, lucrative and valuable resources that they could then process and trade with others. Additionally, uh, if you look at kind of salmon migration routes, uh, many salmon swim by Cape Flattery into the Strait of Juan de Fuca as they make their way into rivers in the greater Salish Sea. Uh, and so macaws had access to many different uh, salmon runs that would be slowly working their way into their spawning grounds. And at that point, as the salmon are swimming by Cape Flattery, they're they're generally at their fattest. They've been feeding out in the Pacific for years on end, and they're nice and big, bulky. They haven't started working, doing the hard work of swimming upstream to spawn, which is when they shed so many of their kind of caloric uh, weight, so macaws had access to a wealth of different resources that then enabled them to really kind of dominate many of these trade networks uh, because they they really kind of had the most.
1: Trade was important, but um, as you describe in the book, violence also played a really crucial role in mm-hmm. the interplay between imperial ambitions and native spatial control as well. Can you tell us a bit about that, too? Yeah.
2: So one of the arguments that I make in this book, and this is really drawing from borderland Scholarship, Uh, is, you know, when you analyze any borderland space, you really need to look at the specific networks, the specific drivers and parameters that different people are setting around, um, you know, kind of the social interactions uh, within these spaces. And violence was definitely one of those networks. And so if you think about kind of like a spectrum of interactions uh, among various uh, historical actors, you know, at one end, you've got uh, kinship and marriage, and at the other end, you might have violence. But even within that spectrum, you've got some blending of the two. Uh, And so for macaws, there was an awful lot of intermarriage with uh, neighboring peoples, Uh, who would want to marry into uh, macaw communities to be able to um, participate in a very lucrative livelihood. Uh, But then you also had a lot of neighboring peoples who uh, were a little jealous, uh, perhaps, of what macaws had and access that they had to halibut banks, to sea mammals, to the salmon coming uh, swimming past Cape Flattery. So, Macaws found themselves needing to defend uh, those resources and defend their access to the resources. So, when others would encroach upon, um, you know, macaw territory and macaw homelands that extended out into the marine waters, uh, they took action to defend themselves. And so, that uh, oftentimes is what sparked a lot of the uh, violence and tensions and conflicts. Uh, in the time before Europeans came. And then when Europeans did arrive on these uh, sailing vessels, uh, many peoples like the Macaws kind of saw them almost like a new source of resources, these vessels coming in with chock full of trade goods that uh, many different peoples in this region wanted. Uh, And so Macaw authorities, people like Chief Tatouche, uh, would use their authority and their power to um, kind of manage or manipulate these networks uh, to their advantage uh, and would you know kind of almost treat these ships like harvestable resources that were under their control. So they controlled indigenous access to these vessels. They kept competitors at bay from gaining direct access to them. You see this also play out up in Nootka Sound. Um, around Chief McQuinnah. And so that, of course, also sparked certain types of tensions as different uh, Northwest Coast authorities would try to jockey for position to control uh, the access of others to these vessels and the trade goods that they brought in.
1: How did the macaws, uh React, and how were they able to maintain continuing control of space as American interests grew in the mm-hmm. Northwest as we get into the nineteenth century and as the geopolitical landscape of the chadi borderland began
2: to change mm-hmm. so for macaws um, one of the one of the uh, patterns that I noticed uh, when I was reading through uh, archival documents, especially in the first half of the nineteenth century. Is that they did not take well to uh, non natives or outsiders coming in trying to set up trading posts or settlements um, to carve out space on macaw lands. Uh, they would chase them away. Um, and so, or, or they would redirect them. And this is also one of these interesting patterns that I see when I kind of look broadly at. Uh, indigenous history across North America is it was not uncommon for non-natives to come in and start, you know, uh, interacting with these indigenous authorities and say, okay, well, where's a good place to settle? Where's a good place for me to set up a trading post? Um, Where's a good place uh, for me to set up a town or something like that? Uh, and what macaws would do is they would direct them to other spaces. They'd say, oh, those lands over there in Vancouver Island, those are perfect for your settlement. Why don't you go set, uh, set up shop over there and we'll come visit and make sure that we trade with you. But uh, they were not very welcoming to having non-natives settle and trade within their own uh, territory, uh, within their own homelands. Uh, there was one trader, Samuel Hancock who initially got set up there um, at Nia Bay and was chased out, but then was invited back in a little later uh, by another Macaw chief who seemed interested in uh, kind of managing and controlling the trade that was coming into Hancock. But then there was a competing Macaw chief who really didn't want Hancock there. And then this is when diseases struck. And uh, at that point, um, they they chased Hancock out once again. So one of the ways that macaws were able to really kind of retain their control over uh, their homelands and their marine spaces was by continually um, keeping others out who were not there with their permission. This happened on the land and this also happened on the, on the ocean.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: You mentioned disease just a second ago, and Mm -hmm. um, the the epidemic diseases that swept through the Chadi borderland were really an important moment in the history of this region. But as you say in the Mm -hmm. book, they're also not even close to the end of the story, which is how a lot of narratives (laughs) about diseased indigenous people go. That's not really the case. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. how epidemic disease did change the region and also what didn't change even after these diseases swept through? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, so... (laughs) The history of diseases uh, in this area is still something that, you know, we have some pretty solid understandings of, uh, but then um, we really need to look at very particular case studies to start to tease out where some of the differences are. Uh, So for macaws, uh, up until the kind of early 1850s, they did a pretty good job of keeping uh, these large uh, European crowd diseases at bay, uh, things like smallpox or uh, the plague or malaria. Uh, And it wasn't really until uh, the early 1850s that disease hit the communities there at Cape Flattery because macaws would hear about diseases, say, in other parts of Puget Sound or down in the Columbia River, and they would steer clear of that and keep people from coming in when there was some type of epidemic that was uh, racing throughout other parts of the region. Um, But in the early 1850s, uh, you have one disease after another, kind of waves of epidemics that uh, do begin to intrude upon. Uh, macaw villages and households at that point. Uh, Some of the, you know, like the first round uh, with malaria is brought by the U.S. survey crew. Um, And, you know, you have a lot of macaws that are coming to the doctor there with the survey crew asking for medicine or for help. Uh, And then shortly after that, you get a few macaws who had been part of a crew of a sailing vessel uh, that I think at that point was coming up from San Francisco. And they uh, got off there at their macaw villages and brought smallpox uh, to the community. And that ripped through uh, the macaws. And in about a year, year and a half period, uh, they lost uh, about three quarters of their people. Um, and that was right at the moment when Isaac Stevens, then territorial governor of Washington State, Uh, caught news that, aha, the macaws have been hit hard by uh, these high disease mortalities. What a great time to come on out there and try to impose a treaty on them. So Stevens came out um, hoping to take advantage of what he thought was a demographic collapse. And indeed, the collapse uh, was quite substantial. And if you read the negotiation notes uh, for that treaty, you see that macaws, you know, were, were literally heartbroken, talking about specific family members uh, who they had lost. The uh, people who are speaking, the macaw authorities who are speaking to Governor Stevens uh, at that time, remarked on the fact that you know just a year ago they weren't the big chiefs. Uh, there were other leaders who would have been the ones speaking, but they had died from disease. So here were these younger leaders, kind of thrust into this position as uh, kind of U.S. intrusion is really starting to take off here in the mid-19th uh, century. Uh, yet, even with that situation, which, you know, would kind of seem to set the stage for uh, a real power grab on the part of the United States, McCaw negotiators uh, still kept what was most important, um, for their people, and that was uh, the reserved rights to continue using their marine spaces, access to whales, seal, halibut, salmon. Uh, they made sure that those items were in the treaty because they knew that as long as they had those, they could probably continue to uh, live life the, on their terms because they could uh, maintain and retain a certain level of economic autonomy. Uh, And then throughout the second half of the 19th century, diseases continue to plague Macaw villages, just like they do uh, with many other indigenous peoples. Um, And so it was like recovery was very difficult to achieve throughout the 19th century. And at the same time that Macaw numbers are being kept low, just like other indigenous uh, population statistics throughout the northwest coast, Uh, you have rising numbers of non-natives coming to the region, taking up settlements, beginning towns, and eventually um, taking up the fisheries. And it's that demographic difference that uh, really kind of tips the scales by the end of the 19th century away from Macaw autonomy.
1: What is a moditional economy? That's a phrase that starts to appear in the book mm-hmm. after, especially, the 1855 Treaty of Nia Bay that you were describing a few minutes ago. What is that, mm-hmm. and how does it relate to the macaws after this period?
2: Yeah, so this is one of the uh, large arguments that I'm making, uh, especially in the second half of the book, where one of the patterns I'm seeing is that macaws are combining customary practices with new opportunities, new markets, new technologies, um, to continue being Macaw and to thrive at doing that. Uh, so in you know, writing a book like this, of course you read widely within um, you know, the literature of American Indian history and the region. And I came across a very useful book by John Lutz, a professor, a historian up at University of Victoria, Um, This book is McCook, and in there he talks about the moditional economy uh, that many uh, Northwest Coast peoples began to embrace. And so the term is from him, and it's a combination of modern and traditional. Uh, So that really kind of fit the parameter of this customary practices combined with new opportunities uh, that I was interested in engaging with. And so for macaws, this meant that they could take customary practices such as fishing, uh, whaling, and sealing. And you know, these, were, these were things they've been doing for generations that really helped define who they were and who they are uh, still to this day as macaws. And they could combine that then with these new markets uh, in kind of the rising extractive industries there in the North Pacific uh, through fisheries, through whaling and sealing, uh, where macaws uh, were wildly successful and could make a considerable profit um, by literally doing what they've been doing for generations.
1: Even with this moditional economy, though, the macaws, they still had to face the rising tide of, as you put it, these global extractive economies and enterprises mm-hmm. in the the northern Pacific how did these large industries like capital, uh, capitalist extractive whaling and sealing, how did they affect the ecology of the region? And how did they affect the macaws mm-hmm. as well?
2: Yeah. Uh, so, of course, this is in the second half or later half of the night, um, uh, kind of the last end of the 19th century. Uh, and this is where you've got a massive expansion in, say, the whaling fleet in the Pacific and one of the patterns that you have there is that, uh, you know, ships from many different countries would come into the Pacific and they would put enormous pressure on one whale species, uh, say like the right whale, and they would nearly hunt it out of existence. And then they would move on to new hunting grounds, to a new whale species, put enormous pressure on them and uh, and push that uh, uh population of whales to near extinction. And then they move on to another. So you've got that larger pattern unfolding on a massive scale uh, in the second half of the 19th century, say with whale hunting. Uh, But then you also have a similar thing starting to happen with uh, sealing, with the hunting of fur seals. And these were both industries. The macaws had been... um, very robustly engaged with long before non-natives came to this region and macaws continued to be engaged with this uh, throughout the second half of the 19th century. Uh, so like take sealing, for example, uh, because, uh you know, at one point they were sealing just kind of off the coast uh, there of their Cape Flattery villages and then uh, selling the skins to uh, fur traders uh, across the Strait of Juan de Fuca uh, in uh, Victoria. Uh, but then you got uh, ship owners from Victoria and Seattle and San Francisco and other places who would come to Nia Bay, hire, or, or, or macaws would hire these ships, uh, these schooners, to take uh, small fleets of macaw canoes out to the sealing banks further offshore. And they'd stay out for like a week or more at a time. Uh, at a time to hunt fur seals, and in return, macaw sealers would pay the schooner owners a third of their catch, and the macaw sealers would retain two-thirds of their catch, Uh, and they saw that this was incredibly profitable, and so the next move, the next natural economic move was to cut out um, those non-native schooner owners, so macaws began investing in their own schooners. buying used vessels, uh, and even commissioning new ships to be built to their specifications. Uh, As the Macaws kind of accrued this fleet, uh, they became even more successful, making tens of thousands of dollars um, with just a few uh, months of sealing. Um, And that was just one of many industries that they were engaged with. And so these Macaw-owned schooners Uh, They would take up to uh, the Bering Sea or off the coast of Japan pursuing fur seals uh, for several months there, kind of in the later summer. Then they'd come back down. Then they'd repurpose those schooners for some of their fisheries. Then in the early spring or even late winter, they'd be engaged with uh, coastal sealing as far south as Northern California, then they go back up to the Bering Sea. And so what we see then is not a pattern of just kind of these native hunters casually spearing a few seals because they got hungry and can sell the skins on the side, but we see uh, these savvy indigenous entrepreneurs investing, making capital investments in this extractive uh, industry. Uh, And that, you know, to think about Um, you know, kind of the scale of all of this. You know, macaws being very involved, very successful, that was a good thing for them. But they were just one small slice of a much larger uh, fur sealing industry that had a pelagic dimension where uh, people would go out into the ocean and hunt seals, but it also had a land-based dimension up in the Pribilof Islands in the Bering Sea where fur seals have their birthing grounds. And so this fur seal population was getting hammered on all sides. Um, on the open ocean, um, macaws would hunt fur seals with these double-headed harpoons, which meant that they lost very few seals because you harpoon a seal, you it's attached to a line, you bring it up to your canoe where you dispatch it and then bring it on board the ship to skin it. Uh, but for non-native hunters, they would use shotguns and they would just blaze away at anything that moved on the water and then go out and collect whatever seals they could. And using shotguns, non-native hunters lost colossal amounts of fur seals that would uh, die and then just sink to the bottom of the ocean before they could get out there to collect them. So the toll on the fur seals on the ocean was enormously high. Then once the fur seals got to their birthing grounds, um, gangs of hunters uh, employed by these commercial operations that held a monopoly over the Pribilof Islands would go out and club seals dead and harvest them that way. Uh, so, uh, fur seal numbers uh, precipitously uh, declined there toward the end of the 19th century, which then caused uh, several uh, nations, especially the United States, to step in to figure out how to conserve this resource to prioritize uh, this monopoly hunt on land uh, in the birthing grounds over that of smaller foreign-born or indigenous hunters at sea. And that's where the macaws found themselves really being pinched by conservation efforts um, that that really privileged non-native capitalized corporate um, hunters over these smaller family-run operations.
1: And it's around the same time when uh, the macaws turn increasingly to halibut fishing in the beginning of the 20th century, which also exemplifies the macaws' ability to both embrace changes while also not losing sight of their traditional identities as well. Can you tell us a bit about halibut fishing and how it's also an example of this moditional economy framework that you described?
2: Yeah. Uh, So in the late eighteen. well, maybe the early 1880s, macaws really start to uh, get heavily involved in commercial fishing, um, like in the ways that non-natives would kind of think of commercial fishing. Macaws have been commercial fishers uh, long before Europeans came to this area of the Northwest, um, taking enormous quantities of halibut and drying them and trading them throughout these regional networks And by the 1880s, you have a rising number of sawmills and uh, small towns proliferating uh, throughout the Salish Sea, and Macaws found that they could take this customary practice of fishing for halibut, process the halibut, and sell it to interested non-native buyers. Uh, So I forget the exact year, but sometime maybe 1888, uh, Macaws harvest 1.5 million pounds of halibut and this is a tribe that I think at that time was maybe 700 individuals um, you know and so that means that maybe four to five hundred people are actually out on the water fishing for halibut that's a staggering amount of fish that they're catching and processing and then selling to these non-native buyers Um and again, macaws are being very, you know, are, are making a pretty substantial profit from this customary practice. And so the macaw way of fishing for halibut uh, at that point in time in the 1880s was you went out in your canoe, um, usually a fleet of canoes would go out, and they would cast these lines down with these specially designed macaw halibut hooks called chibud Uh, And I've got a great illustration of one in in the book that shows the special curve that was designed to, um, you know, so that uh, when a halibut bit the hook, the halibut would stay on the hook. But when some other fish would bite the hook, the hook would slip out of the jaw of that fish. Plus, they would bait it with octopus, uh, which... Uh, The dogfish uh, shark species that kind of infest the halibut bank, uh, they they, they don't like octopus. So that meant that dogfish wouldn't bite the halibut hook. Um, But halibuts love octopus, and so they would bite the halibut hook. Um, And, you know, that really allowed macaws to take their uh, indigenous knowledge of the fish species, of these halibut banks, of how other, how to avoid bycatch um, from species you don't want, uh, to really allow macaws to maximize uh, the catch that they were able to realize from that. But of course, macaws' success in their fisheries drew the attention of other fishing operation uh, operators, non-native fishers, who saw the macaw success and wanted a piece of that. And so uh, from the late 1880s on, you get uh, rising numbers of non-natives who really start to flood into the halibut banks. And they're using uh, increasingly more mechanized gear, larger boats. um, They're connecting with refrigeration units um, and taking huge um, hauls of halibut And processing that and that really led to some rising competition between macaw fishers and non-native fishers Um, and then in the 1910s you get uh, rising conservation issues as people realize that you know the halibut industry is about to collapse because of overharvest and much like the sealing uh, industry you get conservation laws that privilege one set of users non-natives, usually with ties to larger corporations and heavier capitalization, over uh, native fishers who are much smaller in scale and get cut out of, uh, in this case, the halibut industry.
1: And you bring the book right up to the end of the 20th century, um, when whaling makes a return to the Chadi borderland. Can you tell us mm-hmm. a bit about that and how it's an example of what you call a traditional future for the Makas?
2: Yeah. Uh, So this kind of brings me back to the point that brought me into this project. Uh, So in the 1990s, gray whales are removed from the endangered species list Uh, and macaws uh, back in the late 1920s. Uh, had noticed that uh, whale populations um, were extraordinarily low, that there were very few whales swimming past Cape Flattery. and they were worried that the handful of whales that they took every year um, would be too much of would take too much of a toll on the few whales that were left. So in the late 1920s, I think it was around 1928, Uh, They held um, at that time what they thought was the last whale hunt uh, for that generation to um, show the younger generations how to hunt whales with the idea that we will put a moratorium on the whales that we take, allow the species to recover. And once the species, you know, these whale populations have recovered, uh, we can go back out and start hunting. So the pause in 1928 from going out and actively hunting whales on the water, it wasn't um, like a final end to whaling. It was a point where macaws realize um, or or make the active decision themselves to uh, put a pause on whaling to allow the species to recover, always with the idea that they would come back um, to uh, resume whale hunts once again at some point in the future. Uh, so in the 1990s, uh, when gray whales are removed from the endangered species list, uh, macaws realized that this might be a moment when they can uh, get back out on the water to exercise this treaty right that their ancestors had reserved for themselves in the 1855 Treaty of Nia Bay. Uh, but the macaws at that time also recognized that the federal government had signed all these other... Um, compacts and agreements uh, with other uh, international um, organizations, with other countries uh, that really kind of prevented uh, American citizens and others from hunting whales. So the macaws wanted to exercise their treaty rights within uh, kind of the rubric of many of these international conservation agreements. Uh, So they reached out to the federal government, uh, kind of gave them notice that, hey, Uh, they'd like to get back out and start whaling. Greys have been removed, so why don't we go ahead and see if we can get a kind of an annual quota of a number of gray whales that we can hunt um, uh, and exercise our customary practices, our whaling practices. Uh, The federal government at that time was supportive, uh, helped to sponsor the uh, macaws petition to the International Whaling Commission, uh, which kind of adjudicates different quotas for subsistence purposes, cultural purposes, things like that. Um, But that was also then the time when, you know, whales were kind of the poster children of the environmental uh, movement, specifically with uh, um, some some pretty radical animal rights activists uh, who did not want any kind of whaling to be happening at all. Uh, And So this is when you start to see uh, that uh, rising racist rhetoric uh, against macaws, uh, specifically around uh, this resumption of whaling. And one of the things that really struck me about all of that was that um, so much of that rhetoric, whether it was supportive of macaw uh, treaty rights or uh, was against uh, macaw whaling, it always seemed to cast the macaws as wanting to do this. Um, so they could rejuvenate some past, so they could live in the past. And that just didn't make sense to me. Um, and then, as I did uh, this, uh, the research for this project and conducted oral histories and talked to many macaw people and families about why it was important to whale, uh, what I walked away from was more of an interpretation uh, that macaws uh, were engaging in this in the 1990s Because not only was this still important to their identity as macaws, as it had been for generations in the past, but this was still a core part of who they were as macaws today and who they will be as macaws in the future. And so this was yet another way um, that indigenous peoples, such as the macaws, are marking out a future in which they can thrive. And for me... I was, you know, kind of connecting it to the long history of this moditional economy. And I was trying to kind of come up with this idea um, about, you know, that connected both customary practices and the future. And that's when I kind of came up with this idea of the traditional future, that by going out and hunting whales, macaws were securing for themselves a traditional future in which they could continue being macaw on their own terms.
1: So, Josh, as we wrap up here, uh, this book has been out for a few years now. Can you tell us what you've been working on in the interim and maybe a bit of a preview of the next project you have (laughs) coming down the pike?
2: Sure. Uh, So the next project that uh, I'm working on, and I've been chipping away at this for a while, is about indigenous explorers in the Pacific, Uh, native peoples who went places uh, from the late 18th century to the end of the 19th century and largely returned home or somehow shared their experiences and findings uh, with their home communities. Uh, so I've structured it around five different case studies. Um, one of them emerges from the research that I did for The Sea as My Country. Uh, John Mears, the first uh, non-native to sail into macaw waters, um, he, like many good maritime fur trade captains there in the late 18th century, kept, you know, a log and wrote a journal um, about his experience. And it and one of the things that caught my attention is that when Mears sailed from Canton uh, to Nootka Sound and then on down to uh, uh, Cape Flattery, uh, Mears had aboard with him a man by the name of Komakala, a Moachat Indian uh, who... Is the yo- who was the younger brother of Maquina, the more famous uh, chief up there at Nootka Sound. And Komakala had been in Canton for about 11 months uh, before returning home in 1788. Uh, so I thought that Sounded like a pretty cool story, and I wanted to know more about it, and I suspected that Komakala wasn't the only one, and indeed he wasn't. There were a number of Native Hawaiians uh, who were also on Mirza's uh, ship, and then as I started looking around at uh, many other uh, kind of maritime accounts, I saw that there were um, quite a few indigenous peoples in the Age of Sail. Uh, using these new opportunities, these sailing vessels, to travel around the Pacific and indeed around the world, um, and for me, it seemed to kind of flip on the flip on its head this normal Um, assumption that we have that indigenous peoples lived static lives waiting to be discovered by others. Because instead, what I was seeing by looking at these uh, case studies um, is how native peoples uh, in the 19th century were exploring the world too. Uh, So uh, that's largely what I'm going to be grappling with in the next project.
1: That sounds like a fascinating and challenging uh, book (laughs) to be writing right now. (laughs) Yeah. Joshua Reed is associate professor of history at the University of Washington. And his book is The Sea is My Country, which came out in 2015 with Yale University Press. Thanks again for taking the time to talk with us today, Josh. Great.
2: Thank you, Steve.